Our reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 3. So if you have the church Bibles, it's on page 1772. Um, so I'll just give a moment just for people to find the passage in their Bibles. It'll be on the screen so you can read along with the screen as well. Okay, starting at verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows what the thoughts, sorry, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Thank you, Debbie. It's good to see you. Now, if you don't know me, my name's Chris. G'day. Good to see you. Welcome back, Coxes, from wherever you've been. It's good to see you. And uh, 
Okay, I want you to imagine we're in a time machine, right? It's beginning to shake. Okay, scenes are passing by. Too fast for you to be able to realize the speed at which you're going back in time throughout the centuries. It's whirring, it's whirring, finally it's coming down, settling. When you get out, you find yourself, this is wobbling, you find yourself in a large courtyard. This is like a comedy sketch of, um, there's a large courtyard, two-story house filled with people. Some of them are attractive and elegant, others are talking passionately, some are holding court with a group of people gathered around them. You talk to the person beside you, you discover this is a church, originally begun by Paul the Apostle and then led for a time by a man named Apollos, um, who's not there now. Now there's a leadership vacuum, there's debate over who should lead it. There's several possible contenders, all of them impressive in, your, in their own way as you look around, and all of them with their own band of supporters who kind of cluster around them and are hanging on their words. As you're sitting and observing, it seems to you like it's more like a group of churches within a church. And you notice that the leaders people are flocking to, they're definitely popular. Some are good looking and charming, others are funny, they're passionate. Other people just seem magnetic, they're able to draw people to listen to them. And the situation does draw you in. It makes you wonder, what would you look for in a leader if you had to choose? You know, how important is celebrity appeal? Because you could, you could see how the church would grow with someone who had popular appeal, but as you look at the groups, you get this disquieting sense that something is not quite right. The more you watch, you begin to see that the supporters within the different groups aren't really talking to one another except um, to disagree or kind of look down their nose with a superior air at the others or maybe even make a rude jibe or sometimes there's a little heated exchange going on. It's not right for a church. It makes you wonder, what's missing? Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to understand what's going on in Corinth Help us to understand your word to them and help us to accept your word to us. Speak to us, we pray, as we know you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Bible's open, 1 Corinthians 3. All right, and there's an outline of where we're going in the leaflet. Corinth as a city was the place to be. It was wealthy, it was cosmopolitan, it was free and easy, others might say immoral, but you wouldn't, you're a member of Corinth. It was a city of celebrities where popularity and personal appeal and clever words were everything. When Paul came there in AD 49, he came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. He felt daunted by this place. And yet, despite his fear, he started preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. First in the synagogue, and then next door <laughs> to that, when he was kicked out of the synagogue, fairly provocative. Anyway, people started responding, and, and they, they, they formed a church, but they brought with them the cultural values of their city. Paul stayed there 18 months, teaching them before moving on to plant a church in Ephesus. Now, roughly six years later from when he first went, he's now writing to them because he's heard that there's divisions among them and it's ripping the church apart. 
Now, he's already raised these things in chapter one, but now he's coming back full circle to them to finish his point, meaning the whole of chapters one to three are a sustained argument which have been building to his conclusion. Of course, God is speaking to us in this. Paul's not just writing to the Corinthians, but chapter one, verse two, to all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. He's writing to us as well. And you and I know that divisions in church over leaders isn't something that's been limited to the first century. So, in chapter one, he began by, by thanking God for them, essentially saying, in Christ, God has given you all that you need to get through this. And the way that they're going to get through this is through the apparently foolish and weak message of the cross, which, though it appears to be foolish and weak, in fact, is God's power to save them. Of course, but who's going to see that when it appears foolish and weak? Only those, chapter two, who have the spirit of God um, who opens their eyes to understand what God has freely given us in his son because of the cross. And now in chapter three, Paul draws these threads together and what he's gonna do is he's going to crucify the division over leadership that's been racking the Corinthian church. So this chapter is about leadership, it's about leaders within the church, it's about how we're to think about them and Paul makes three points. Number one, don't boast about leadership. Number two, leaders must be careful how they build. Number three, remember who we are as the church and then finally he applies it by drawing attention to some of our blind spots. Number one, don't boast about human leadership. Paul addresses the Corinthians as his brothers and sisters. That is, they're Christians. They are his brothers and sisters in Christ. They have the spirit. But then he says, though you have the spirit, though you're my brothers and sisters, I can't address you as people who live by the spirit. The reality is that you're worldly. You're still infants in Christ. He says, of course, when I came to you, I had to give you milk, not solid food. Uh, because you weren't yet ready for it. And that's true, they were non-Christians, right? So he preaches to them, they become Christians. But now he says, to your shame, you're still not ready for solid food. The assumption is that we're meant to grow up. We're meant to mature in our faith. We begin as babies in Christ. Babies, of course, are cute. But what's not cute is someone who's 20 years old and is still behaving like a baby. Um, You have to take charge of growing up and the passage of time doesn't necessarily guarantee it. When our daughter Sally was born, I can say this because she's overseas at the moment, (laughs) Um, she couldn't handle solids for a long time. She had enough trouble just keeping the milk down. She had 25 bibs and um, always a minimum of three on her. One was not enough, she'd throw up and it just would soak right through her clothes. She was always chucking. Um, Her sisters made up a song that went, Sally chucks, Sally chucks a lot. Sally never, never, never stops. They they used to sing this around the house. Um, Thankfully, now she's stopped chucking. (laughs) All right, imagine, (laughs) poor Sally. (laughs) This has got a leak back, I know. (laughs) Imagine she's 18 now, she is, but uh, she still has to wear three bibs at least all the time because she keeps vomiting up her milk and she's never got onto solids. No good, right? Spiritually, that's the situation for the Corinthians. They're not ready for solid food. 
They're still infants. They still need milk. The message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the one that Paul began with. All right? Now, of course, Paul will keep preaching this, but what is it, what's the solid food that they're missing out on? Well, if you're taking notes, check out Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Write it down. There it tells you, that in contrast to the milk, the solid food is teaching about righteousness. That is the application of the cross to our lives, where by constant use we learn to distinguish good from evil. The Corinthians haven't done this. No wonder their church is in disarray. They are still worldly. And it's coming out in their jealousy, their quarrels, over who they're following as leaders. They have the spirit, but they're behaving like they don't. Verse four. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, he says, are you not mere human beings without the spirit? You know, you're no different to unbelievers here. Paul says, this is folly. Because what, after all, are church leaders? You know, what is he, what is Apollos? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Now, of course, we don't uh, live in a country with slaves or servants, you know, employed in our household. Um, parents, stop thinking that that should be your children. Or children, stop thinking that should be your parents. Hmm. Um, but for countries that do, you know, if you were a Christian in those countries and you wanted to choose someone who would be the leader of your church, you wouldn't naturally choose the slave. You'd choose someone of standing, someone of position. But Paul turns all that on its head. He describes church leaders in the lowest of terms as only servants. They're not to be thought of as the great ones, however effective they may be. Why not? He says, well, think, think, about, think about it this way. Think of yourself as a field, a field owned by God. He said, I planted the field when I came to you. I sowed the seed of the gospel into your lives. After I left, Apollos gave you water you know, he taught you, and yes, there was growth. But neither of us made that happen. You know, no farmer, neither he who plants nor he grows can, or waters, can actually make the plant grow. They don't make anything grow. They can provide the right conditions for growth, but they don't make it happen. Verse six, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Which means, please see this, look at verse seven. Look at the word only. He says, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God. Only God who makes things grow. That is the exact opposite to how we think. So I have a book at home, the hundred most influential people who've ever lived, right? <laughs> Written by a non-Christian. But he rated the Apostle Paul at number six, six out of all the people who've ever lived in the world. And, you know, we'd agree that he's immensely influential. He's a witness of the ascended Jesus, apostle to the Gentiles, church planter extraordinaire, author of the bulk of the New Testament, a man whose words we, we are hanging on right now, you know, 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet, he's immensely influential. Paul says, well, yeah, I did all those things, sure, but please don't attribute any spiritual growth on your part to me. Because only God, only God 
Not me, only God brings growth. Verse 9, we're just co-workers under him. And yes, all church leaders and workers, the one who plants, the one who waters, verse 8, will be rewarded according to their labour, but please don't be under any delusion about who's making things grow. It's not the leaders, it's not any, any leader. No leader gives growth, the Spirit of God gives growth. Only God, verse 7, makes things grow. Which means it is absolute folly to boast about human leadership in churches or to divide a church over which leader should be followed more than another because it's only God who brings the growth. Now, my hunch is that when we, you know, we say it, I've, I've pointed it out, everyone's going, yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, obviously. But there's another part of us going, except, hang on, why, why is it that some churches under some leaders produce more long-lasting spiritual fruit than others? You put it the, other, the opposite way around. If it's God who gives all the growth, does that mean church leaders are off the hook? That they don't need to pay any attention to how they lead? No. Second point, church leaders must be very careful how they build. So Paul now turns from an agricultural field metaphor to a building metaphor. He's been talking of a field, he, himself the planter, now he talks about a building and he is the master builder. Verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, literally the master architect. And someone else is now building on it. So this is a long-term building project. It's not like a Mark Hennessy. You can manage to whip up a house and you know, about six weeks flat, right? A, a long-term build. Think of the cathedrals in Europe. They take 400, 500 years to build. The temples in, the old, in uh, Paul's day took decades to build. Well, Paul's thinking in those terms. He's the master architect. He lays the foundation very carefully Apollos takes over, he builds upon it further, and now other leaders take over the work that Apollos begun. The important thing, he says, is not who's, who's doing it, but that each builder, each person should build with care. If you like, the field illustration of the church shows us what God's role is in church growth. Only he grows the church. The building illustration tells us what the leader's role is. It matters how leaders build. Each one should build with care. And I think instinctively we know that. You know, imagine that instead of being here, you're a member of Trinity Mount Barker, and because Clayton's left, you're now on the search committee, all right? This is your job. Uh, you have to work out who you're gonna have as a new pastor. So the question is raised, what sort of pastor are you going to look for? Now, of course, Clayton loved dressing neatly. Are you going to look for a snappy dresser, someone who wears cufflinks to bed? Um, you know, I'm sure he wore patent leather shoes as his slippers, but anyway. Um, Clayton loved merchandising, right? Do you look for a marketer? Do you look for, hmm, maybe take another tack, someone who had strengths where Clayton was weak? See, what sort of leader will you choose to build the church. Paul says, a careful one. 
which means two things. Number one, someone who doesn't mess with the foundation and someone who doesn't build with shoddy materials. First of all, they don't mess with the foundation. Verse 10, each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Of course, when Paul came, he resolved to know nothing while I was with them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. Christ, Christ is a title, meaning, meaning the promised king from God. Crucified, it was to die the lowest of deaths, to fall under the judgment of God. Paul's message is very simple. This is the foundation. In Jesus, God has sent the one and only saviour for all the world. He saves us through him falling under the judgment of God. This death is absolutely effective for all who believe, proved in his resurrection from the dead as the Lord, the, the Christ of life and death. That's a solid foundation. Take it piece by piece. To know that Jesus is the Lord saving us tells us something about ourselves tells us that we need saving, right? It's obvious, isn't it? Uh, we can't do it ourselves. That's why God had to send a saviour. Now, that sounds basic, but that idea soon came under attack from an Irish bishop named Pelagius who taught that so far as sin was concerned, we are born not depraved but morally neutral and without the stain of sin and that simply by exercising our free will to do what's right, we can save ourselves, but that's to mess with the foundation, that Jesus is the saviour whom we need. And it took the brains and the, you know, the schutzburg of Augustine in the fourth century to, to straighten that one out. Well, knowing that Jesus is the Lord saving us also tells us that as Lord, he is able to save us completely. Again, that sounds basic, but very quickly, the truth is under attack in the New Testament. People saying faith in Jesus isn't enough. You've got to also become fully Jewish. You've got to satisfy the requirements of the Jewish law. Blokes being circumcised to save. Now, be saved. Now, today it's different laws which are put up as necessary hoops for people to jump through to be saved. No, no, no. That's messing with the foundation. Because the one who is sent to save you is the Lord Himself. He is able to save com completely. He's not deficient in his ability to save. Paul wouldn't stand for messing with that foundation. To know that Jesus is the Christ, the promised King from God, tells us we need, therefore, to obey him once we're saved. Again, it sounds obvious, but who amongst us hasn't thought at one time or another the wonderful thing about the cross and free grace is that now I'm so forgiven, I can do what I want. I can let sin reign unhinged. That is to mess with the foundation that the one who is your saviour is the one who is your Lord, your King. And it's also to fail to realise that freedom comes in obedience, not in disobedience. So Paul spends a lot of his time in Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians and Colossians and Galatians correcting that that's silly way of thinking. Paul's foundation was Jesus was crucified for us. That's the foundation. Again, it's basic except it's, it might be acknowledged as fact, but the meaning is often thrown out by people who say, oh, God is love, therefore he cannot ever punish anyone, and therefore 
what was happening on the cross was not Jesus taking our punishment and God somehow pouring out his wrath on Jesus in our place. No, no, no. Because God is a God of love, he, wrath and love can't coincide. That is to mess with the foundation. Why is it to mess with the foundation? Because judgment day is a clear reality that's going to come. It's clearly spoken about in the scriptures right the way through. If we say that God's anger was not poured out on Jesus, we have no assurance for ourselves that on the day of judgment, his anger has somehow been dealt with. And that leaves us afraid on the, fa- on the, uh, on the day of judgment. But Paul says, Romans 3.25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement to turn away God's anger from us onto him. I could go on. The first part of church leaders building carefully means we cannot mess with the foundation laid, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The second part of being a careful builder is not to then build on those foundations using shoddy materials. Verse 12, Paul says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or wood, hay or straw, their work's going to be shown up for what it is because the day will bring it to light. That day is the day of Christ, the day of judgment, when all that leaders have been building with will be tested. I mean, what comes through on the day of judgment is going to show the quality of what they've been building with. The contrast being drawn is between those, build, those materials which are burned up and the, the pure materials which will survive. Paul says, if what has been built survives, that builder, yes, they'll receive a reward. Now, this is not salvation by works, okay? We can only, any leader can only do that work because God's been gracious to them. Verse 10, Paul says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Leaders can only serve because of God enabling them. But, leaders are still responsible for how they build. And God will reward faithful building on the foundation of Jesus Christ and using materials that will last, that will survive. There's the reward. But there's also a warning, verse 15. If what is built is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet be saved, even as this is a funny image. Even as though only as one escaping through the flames. You can sort of imagine someone running through a burning house or jumping through a flaming hoop and sort of, you know, <laughs> tushy smouldering, you know. <laughs> um, the flames here, it's not talking about purgatory, right, which is this sort of paying off of unforgiven sins after death in fire before which you go to heaven. It's a Roman Catholic idea. That idea is foreign to the scriptures. It's not there at all. Um, Christ died for sins once for all. On the cross as he died, he said, it is finished. Atonement was fully made there in full. Can't be talking about purgatory. It's talking about a leader who themselves are saved by Christ but have been shoddy in the building up of the people of God so that on the last day, yes, they might be saved, but none of their people are. There's no, been no fruit of repentance in the lives of the congregation. There's been no lives transformed in the image of Christ. There's been no souls won from the day of judgment. But yet you look at their ministry and you say they're undoubtedly busy. 
I mean, they have been excellent managers. They are really good at tech. Um, they are excellent at drawing a crowd, extremely friendly. And when they preach, people feel good about themselves. They are so good at helping people to think positively. Now, of course, these things aren't bad, so please don't hear me dishing on people who are doing that. But by themselves, if that's all someone's ministry is, and what's left out is the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, which draw on all the riches of the scriptures that God has preserved for us through his spirit. Those things by themselves won't yield lasting material on the day of judgment. And that's why it matters. It matters immensely what's being taught here from the pulpit. It matters what's being taught in our home groups. It matters what's being taught in our kids and youth and young adults programs. It so matters. And it matters that I pay attention to this and I'm able to talk to leaders because I'm the guy who'll have to stand before the Lord and give account. And so I've got to be able to have influence on leaders and Bible teachers. Or whoever's in this position, you know, has to have that influence. So anyone who's a leader should therefore pause and ask, are we building with material that will last? Gold, silver, costly stones, or material that's gonna get burnt up, wood, hay, or straw? Gotta reflect on that deeply and carefully. Okay, so what's God said? He's told us two important things. Christian leaders, let's get it in perspective, they are only servants of Christ. They are not to be given allegiance or glory deserved by God alone. However, God also cares about his church and he's gonna hold the leaders accountable because his church is precious. And that's why for a lasting building material, what's mentioned is gold, silver and costly stones. Now any builder here, will think they're not the things that I build with, you know, if you want to, why, why are they particularly mentioned, you know? Why not granite, you know, or something like that? <laughs> uh, because they're the things that would adorn a temple. That's why, that's the point. And that brings us to the third point, which crucifies division. We need to remember who we are as the church. Don't you know that you yourselves, meaning the collective group, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Um, I think in the 21st century, it's easy to not get the big sense of this um, because in the first century, of course, in Jerusalem, there was a massive temple and it took up one quarter of the whole city. It was huge and it was the one spot on earth where God was said to dwell and people would come from all around the world to come and learn of God and worship there. And three times a year, the Jews would flock in from all over Judea and come in, tens and tens of thousands of them would come in to celebrate and to worship. Um, it was the focal point of all religious activity and God and worship and their life as a people. The closest analogy today I can think of is if you've seen um, pictures of what happens in Mecca, you know, the Islamic pilgrimage where the hordes of people are circling around that big black cube, the Kaaba, um, there in Mecca. The big focal point for Muslim people around the world, well, the temple was that. 
the temple was that for the people of God. And yet here, Paul makes a massive announcement that instead of the building in Jerusalem being the temple of God, guess what? It's the gathered people of God, the people of Christ in any one city. They are the temple of God. The body of Christ on earth, the gathered, redeemed community, enlivened by the Spirit of God. We together, we here in Aldgate, we are the temple of God amongst whom God dwells and lives by his Spirit. This is an astounding truth. And therefore you see how wrong division is. Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. Now what can destroy a temple? Well, false teaching and heresy can destroy a temple. Weak, pathetic, superficial teaching can also destroy a temple over time. And division and factionalism can destroy God's temple. And God will hold to account not just the leaders, but actually look at the, look at the word, it's, it's anyone, not just leaders, anyone who destroys God's temple. And so lastly, what we therefore must do is to see our blind spots. And that's why Paul straight away now says, do not deceive yourselves. Now the only reason why you'd say do not deceive yourselves to a group of people is because they had a great propensity to deceive themselves. We, and of course they don't know that they're deceiving themselves, that's the thing about being deceived, isn't it? So, um, <laughs> you know, um, they'll think that they understand the truth about something. The reality is they've swallowed a lie. That's what happens when you're deceived. What sort of lie? A lie about wisdom. Do not deceive yourselves. If anyone of you thinks you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools. Fools in inverted commas, the, the foolishness of the cross. You've got to get that in your heads so that then you can become wise. Now, most of us like to think of ourselves as being wise, as possessing wisdom. You've been around the block a few times. You know, in life, you, you accumulate some knowledge, some, learn some life skills. You, you know, you, you, you don't think you've got everything, but you think, you know, I've, I'm, I've got some wisdom. The question is not whether you've got wisdom, but which wisdom do you have? because we can have the wrong one and we can be deceived on this. We can have a wisdom which is wise by the standards of the age. A wisdom which evaluates leaders by how winsome they are, how entertaining. And I have to say, I fall into this. So, you know, come home from church, see someone in the house who wasn't at church, how was it? And then I can slip in so easily just to to comment on the speaker. It's normally the speaker or the music. <laughs> the speaker. Um, oh, they're really entertaining, very funny, boring, boring, sent me to sleep. No comment about what God has said to me, no comment about how I was challenged, convicted, how I grew in faith. That is to adopt the wisdom of this age, where it's all about the charisma, or not, of the speaker. That wisdom is foolishness, verse 19, in God's sight. In verse 20, it is futile. So, secondly, verse 21, no more boasting about human leaders. That's the end of his argument. Okay, he doesn't come back to it. That's the conclusion he's been driving towards. No more boasting about human leaders. 
splits over leaders, factions, personalities. They just impoverish the church. The reality, however, and this is what you've been deceived on, this is what you're blind to, he says, is that you're really rich. Please see this. He says, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours. And you're of Christ and Christ is of God. You see, ultimately he's saying, you're rich. Please realize this. You will inherit everything because it all belongs to Christ and you belong to him and he's of God and God's in charge. He owns the whole kit and caboodle. You'll inherit the whole lot. So stop being petty and dividing over small things. You know, God blesses us with all sorts of leaders. You know, they, they belong to you guys, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or whoever labors for the Lord. They belong to you. And you know, there's no, you know, you might feel like you're being derailed by factionalism. There's no big enemy which is ultimately going to triumph. So he mentions the big enemies. Life, death, present, future. Paul picks up on this in Romans 8. No, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, if Christ gives us ultimate victory, why let something as fickle as allegiances over human leaders stand in the way of fellowshipping together? All things are ours. Don't be deceived. So, don't boast about leadership. Leaders, be really careful how you build. And remember, church, who you are. You are the precious temple of God. So don't divide. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for any worldly thinking which makes more of leaders than we ought. Forgive us for placing allegiance over human leaders when you deserve the glory. Help all leaders and teachers, myself included, to teach not messing with the foundation, but only building with materials that will last. And Father in heaven, may we lay, lay hold of the truth that we are your precious temple, so valuable to you, and therefore hold it such a serious thing to want to divide. Our loving Father, keep us from that. In the name of Jesus, for your glory. Amen.